When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. At its core, economics takes the view that collective behavior arises out of simple, self-interested decisions of individuals. But economists are returning to an old idea that cultural forces play a big role too. And you can do it quickly. You can do it blindfolded. You can do it with your feet. There was a time that the Rubik's Cube was just a toy, but it's long since become an object of competition. And the competitors are really fast. First up, though. After months of anticipation, special counsel Robert Mueller reluctantly appeared before Congress yesterday for hours of televised testimony. Do you swear or affirm under penalty of perjury that the testimony you're about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief? So help you God. Let the record show the witness answered the affirmative. Thank you, and please be seated. He testified in back-to-back hearings before the House Judiciary Committee and the House Intelligence Committee. But the president still refused to sit for an interview by you or your team? True. In a sometimes halting performance, Mr. Mueller reiterated points from his report on whether President Donald Trump's election campaign conspired with Russia and whether Mr. Trump impeded the ensuing investigation. Lost in the noise, again, was a warning that Russian operatives continue to meddle in America's electoral system. Mr. Mueller had promised that his testimony would contain nothing beyond his report, and on that, he delivered. His appearance doesn't seem to have had the impact that many Democrats were hoping for. It may be the last that the public hears from Mr. Mueller, even if his investigation and his report continue to drive debate. Robert Mueller's investigation ran for two years, and during that whole time, he said nothing publicly. John Prudeau is our United States editor. There was a lot of competition among journalists to find out what was really going on with the Mueller investigation, and it wasn't leaky. Then, when he presented his report, finally, he gave some short remarks, and that was it. And since then, Democratic congressmen in particular have really wanted to get him to testify so that they could get him on the record, they could get clips of him talking about President Trump. And so this was really eagerly anticipated. In the end, they had him for six hours, even though he said he was reluctant to testify and that as a prosecutor who still had some live cases, it was in some senses inappropriate for him to do so. So this was very eagerly anticipated testimony on the Hill. Did he say more? What, what, what did they extract from him? He didn't say a whole lot more. Most of his answers were short, clipped. I refer you to this page in the report. Yes, no. He didn't go beyond what was written in the report. And again, he said right at the beginning of his testimony, that he wouldn't do so. Well, I I would uh, uh, direct you to the report and adopt what we have in the report with regard to that particular issue. 
We don't have the redacted version. That's and yet, nevertheless, there was a certain power to hearing him say some of the things that appear in the report. I pick out two things in particular. The first would be on obstruction of justice. The president has repeatedly claimed that your report found there was no obstruction and that it completely and totally exonerated him. But that is not what your report said, is it? Correct. It is not what the report said. So one of the headlines out that, you know, President not cleared on obstruction of justice. There was a certain power to seeing Robert Mueller say that. The other thing was him saying that agreeing with a Democratic congressman that the president could potentially be charged once he leaves office because that opinion of the Office of Legal Counsel would no longer apply. Could you charge the president with a crime after he left office? Yes. You believe that he committed, you could charge the president of the United States with obstruction of justice after he left office? Yes. Uh, ethically, under the ethical standards? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain because I haven't looked at the ethical standards, but the OLC opinion... But that's not a whole lot of payoff from six hours of testimony. And what did Mr. Mueller say about the uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election? On election interference by the Russian government, he repeated much of the evidence which is in the report, which is very damning on the extent of the activities. He also said that he thought that election interference by Russia was ongoing. No repercussions whatsoever to Russia if they did this again. And as you stated earlier, as we sit here, they're doing it now. Is that correct? Uh, You're absolutely right. Uh, Do you have any advice? And he said that he hoped this wasn't the new normal in American politics, but it very well may be. So it was Democratic congressmen who who wanted to get Mr. Mueller on the on the national stage in the first place. Well, how do you think they did in terms of making the most of their opportunity? I don't think they got what they wanted out of this. If what they wanted was to get lots of footage of Robert Mueller criticizing Donald Trump and his campaign by reading out bits of his report, they didn't get that. What they did get is what another thing that congressmen often want from these kinds of hearings, which is clips of themselves talking. You know, for many of them, the point was their opportunity to speak rather than what they could get out of Robert Mueller. And you could see this by even while Mueller was testifying, you had clips of Democratic and Republican congressmen grilling him, popping up, cut by their office, and then popping up on YouTube and on Twitter. So the opportunity for the congressman to speak was as important or perhaps even more important than the opportunity for Robert Mueller to speak. And that kind of grandstanding was going on on both sides of the aisle? It certainly was, as you'd expect. Republicans were keen to repeat one of the conclusions of the report, which was that the special counsel didn't find evidence of a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. On the other hand, they were also very keen to assail Robert Mueller's impartiality, the credibility of some of his team. You hired a bunch of people that did not like the president. Peter Strzok hated Trump. Okay. You didn't know that before he was made part of your team. Is that what you're saying? I did not know that. All right. uh, And a lot of Republicans on the committee were very cross that he'd floated this idea that he couldn't exonerate the president. And they said, well, this is not how a prosecutor's meant to behave. Prosecutors don't stand up and say, I can't exonerate this person. They stand up and say, I can charge this person or I can't charge this person. And so, you know, your legal theory of this this case is questionable. So there's quite a lot of that. There was even some slightly crazy conspiracy theory stuff. So yes, there was a good deal of grandstanding from Republicans as well. And you got the feeling that plenty of them probably knew that President Trump would have been watching some of this on TV and were, were anxious to impress him. And, and did they succeed? Was, was, was he impressed? Well, it seems so. He was tweeting about it and, and he had plenty to say about it afterwards. Robert Mueller had no material 
He had nothing to work with. So obviously he did very poorly today. I don't think there's anybody, even among the fakers, I don't think there's anybody that would say he did well. I looked at your people. What do you think this testimony means for President Trump? For President Trump, the most important thing here was whether the testimony would make it more likely that House Democrats would try and impeach him. I think it's less likely than it was before Robert Mueller testified. I don't think it was very likely in the first place for a number of reasons, but most of them just politically. Clearly, the Democratic leadership in the House doesn't want to impeach. They think that if you impeach in the House and then the president is acquitted in the Senate, that backfires politically. That may or may not be correct, but it's certainly their view. And I think that those... Democrats who are in favor of impeachment, those House Democrats in favor of impeachment, who are hoping perhaps that Robert Mueller might give them some ammunition, will have been disappointed by the hearing. So takeaway for President Trump, impeachment less likely. And and what about for what the uh, the public will make of it, right? This is this has been this was trailed as you know a, a huge event. Um, w- what happens now? Does this draw a line under it? Is this the end of of the the broad Mueller question? This has always been a story which has fascinated people who follow politics very closely more than it's been a story for the public at large. I mean, if you go around talking to voters away from the big cities, it's hard to find much mention of the Mueller report. People are focused on different things. And so though Democrats may be rather disappointed in the short term by Robert Mueller's testimony, actually politically, in terms of kind of political strategy, it might not be a bad thing for them to move on from this. So th- this seems to be the last that we'll hear from from Robert Mueller, and and you've been following this for for literal years in um, forensic detail. Um, what's what's your takeaway from all this? My takeaway from this really is something about how the news is made. I mean, had the Mueller report landed without the trails, without all the investigative reporting, without everything we knew already about what had happened in the 2016 campaign, had it just landed on people's desks without any prior knowledge? I think it would have had an extraordinary impact in American politics. I think it's quite likely you would have had impeachment proceedings already. But the way that our knowledge of what happened in 2016, both in the Russian election interference and in terms of what the Trump campaign got up to, the way it gradually built meant that when the report arrived, a lot of people shrugged their shoulders and said, oh, well, there's not much new to see here. That, of course overlooks the fact that what's in the report is very extraordinary and I think people will read it in 10, 20, 30 years time and really look with disbelief at what happened in 2016. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. For a lot of economists, the dismal science is just that, a science. They reckon that if all people just behaved according to good economic principles, acting rationally and in their own self-interest, economic theory could plot the course of the universe. But more and more, those principles are looking inadequate. So economists are turning back to ideas they've previously dismissed, albeit with some improvements. 
If you go back to the 20th century and you, you look at how social scientists, how they try to explain differences in the fates of different countries or different parts of the world, why Europe is rich or why Asia is poor, there was a, a fair amount of reliance on what you might call cultural explanations. Ryan Avent writes Free Exchange, our column on economic theory, and is based in Washington. Of the sort that, you know, there's something about the way Europeans are that contributed to the Industrial Revolution there, and there's something about the way that people in Africa or in Latin America are that meant that they were still poor. Ultimately, these sorts of cultural explanations kind of fell out of fashion. There was a lot of racism just lurking beneath the surface that th these sorts of cultural stories were used to justify. For, I think, a lot of the serious economists, they just didn't find the stories very satisfying. That it was not much of an explanation to say that, that Europe was rich because of how Europeans were. That didn't really answer any questions. And so economists kind of went their own way. They said, we're going to focus on trying to explain everything in terms of individuals making decisions on the basis of rational calculations, self-interest, and see if we can sort the world out in that way. And that's kind of where the profession has really been for most of the last 40 years. But there are signs that that's beginning to change and that, that economists are starting to take uh, stories about how culture affects the economy more seriously. What do you mean by that? How, how can culture be figured in? Well, let me give you one example. So there is an economic historian called Joe Mokier. His focus is on the roots of industrialization and what sort of things contributed to the beginning of, of modern economic growth. He argues that kind of the critical change that occurred that allowed Europe to start an industrial revolution was a cultural one that you had starting in like the 16th century, this community of, of scholars across Europe Basically, they started to invent science. They said, you know, actually, we can understand nature, and the best way to understand it is to try to have this open, disinterested, data-based discussion. And then if we learn things about nature and how it works, we can start using that knowledge to make our lives better. And Mokir basically says, once you had this idea in place, once it was sufficiently well established, some sort of industrial revolution was basically inevitable. Okay, but in our current analysis of culture, how, how do things work when uh, issues of race and, and racism come up? Well, so I think one of the things that's better about the new sorts of ways of, of using culture to explain things is the sense that culture is something that evolves. You know, one of the reasons it's interesting to study is that it changes over time. If you were to look at China and why it didn't industrialize first, you could say, well, it's not something inherent, uh, something deep in Chinese culture that prevented that. You know, rather, there was a historical outcome there that was different. You had schools of philosophy in China that, that kind of were rationalistic, but that for various reasons, these other ideas kind of became more popular. These sort of Confucian ideas that venerated ancient wisdom and tradition, because history played out in that particular way, the sorts of ideas that might have led to an industrial revolution never really materialized. And so, you know, it's not, it's not an appeal to race. It's not an appeal to something deep about the way a community is. It's that there were these different cultural views that, that kind of jostled for supremacy, and a particular one won out. But what you're describing incorporating is extremely qualitative stuff, woolly stuff. How does that fit into the existing body of economics that is so analytical, so mathematical? I mean, I think the thing to realize is part of this is a, a response to the fact that a lot of economic answers at the moment aren't very satisfying. And, you know, we're, economists are recognizing that, that the way they do things now is not sufficient to understand the way the world works. And so the reason to introduce culture is because it helps you understand and explain the world better. 
I think economists had the ambition in the 20th century to try to be something like physicists or something like engineers, right? If you have a sort of clear sense of how objects or particles interact with each other, then maybe you can build upward from that and understand how whole systems work. I think what we have come to realize is that the world is much, much more complicated than that, and that you end up abstracting away from stuff that really, really matters. And among those things is culture. You know, if you look at changes in the labor market fortunes of, of particular groups, like women or like racial minorities, if you try to explain that solely by saying, you know, these people were just all out there individually making decisions based on their own rational self-interest, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. You know, you have to talk about the way that culture changed to allow women to allow people of color to participate fully in the labor market. And if you don't talk about that, it just doesn't make any sense. And I think that's sort of what we're getting at here, is that we need to introduce cultural explanations because the stories our models are telling us in economics just aren't working very well. They're not very satisfying. So where does this leave the, the field of economics, though? The, these are some big changes you're talking about. How, how does economics have to transform to, to really bring culture in? Slowly but surely, economics is going to recognize that some things, at least now, have to be done qualitatively. We have to build toward a better understanding of how this stuff works before we can start trying to capture it in equations. And, you know, maybe down the road, our understanding of culture, how it's transmitted from individual to individual, how it affects behavior, maybe it becomes so sophisticated and maybe our ability to gather microdata from every aspect of our lives is so enhanced that we are able to kind of build models that say, here's how culture works and here's how we can engineer it. It's kind of scary to think about, but that, that is a possibility. But I think right now, you know, we're, we're just at the initial stages of saying culture matters. It's something we have to take seriously if we want to explain the world. And these, these old attitudes have to be kind of uh, adjusted a little bit. Ryan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. At the Rubik Cube Championship in 1981, the puzzle's creator, Erno Rubik, had a confession. I can do it in between one and two minutes. So you're not as fast as some of these boys here? Yeah, sure. That contest was won with a time of 25 seconds. These days, Mr. Rubik would be even further behind. The current world record was set in November last year when Yu Shengdu, a Chinese guy, solved it in 3.47 seconds. Lizzie Pete is a researcher at The Economist. That was the first time it had been solved under four seconds, and it actually smashed the previous record by 0.75 seconds. Earlier this month, there was the World Cube Association World Championship in Melbourne. Sadly, no one beat this record, so it still stands. But an 11-year-old boy from the Philippines came second with an average time of 6.78 seconds, which is still pretty quick. And he was the youngest ever person to reach the podium. That's, like, blindingly fast. Mm -hmm. That's insane still. How did we get to this as a sort of competitive sport? So the Rubik's Cube first was patented in 1974 by Erno Rubik, a Hungarian scientist. And it became kind of a global craze, but not really about speed. It was more about the mathematical logistics of solving it. And its kind of popularity gradually faded as new crazes came along. However, it was saved by the internet. There were tutorials online, there were forums. YouTube obviously came along, which showed you a pretty step-by-step process of how to do this. And then a world championship was reintroduced in 2003 after 19 years of absence. 
And so how is that done? How do you shave time off? What's the, the way to get it faster? There are a lot of different solving techniques. Back in the early days of speed cubing, the corners first method was the most popular one, which is quite self-explanatory. So you solve the corners first. Over time, there are an array of different techniques that people use. There's the Petrus technique and there's CFOP, which was used to smash the four-second record last year. There are actually 43 quintillion possible configurations, but solving it never needs more than 20 moves. On average, about 18 should be necessary if you know what you're doing. There are also lots of different tactics you can use. So the World Cube Association allows competitors to lubricate and sand the cube's mechanisms. But you've got to be a bit careful because any damage or markings can result in disqualification and the cubes are quite closely inspected before any contest. In recent years, magnetic cubes have also helped to shave off some seconds as well, which some people argue is the reason why over the last few years, the times have come down even further. And and I presume that to become a competitive speed cuber, you have to dedicate a feral bit of your life to it. Definitely. So you have to practice and practice. A lot of it relies on muscle memory as well as rote learning these various techniques I was mentioning earlier. There's also quite a degree of luck. So each cue before any contest is scrambled by sort of a neutral observer. And a lot of people point to that sub four time and say that he actually had a really lucky first scramble, which made it much easier for him to get to the end result. But it's obviously also a lot of passion as well. Hundreds and hundreds of people turn up at these contests and there is a chance for global fame and glory, like Yu Shengdu, who is quite a household name apparently in this world. Also, it is just quite a lot of fun. Last year, a 13-year-old boy from China went viral after smashing some pretty wacky world records. He juggled three Rubik's Cubes and solved them while juggling in about five minutes. And he solved three Rubik's Cubes, two with his hands and feet simultaneously in one minute, 36 seconds, which is pretty impressive. With his feet? Yes, with his feet. This is, this is the frontier of speed cubing, do you reckon? This is, the, this is brave new world stuff. Yeah, it's exciting. And even more excitingly, it's not just humans anymore getting involved in the fun. In 2016, a German-built robot solved the puzzle in 0.637 seconds. And in 2018, a robot built by two MIT engineering students executed a move in 15 milliseconds and solved a whole cube in just 0.38 seconds, which is pretty incredible. So, so how are you with the Rubik's Cube? Are you a master solver, a speed cuber? Unfortunately, I'm not quite in the league of Yu Shengdu yet, but at the moment I can solve one side. How long does that take you? Um, probably about two minutes. Well, thanks for spending this time with us then, Lizzie. You, you could have solved two sides by now. Thanks very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.